Hey guys, what's good? You're listening to London College of Communications Value Talks, a series where we bring together figures from across the creative industries to chat about contemporary issues and the importance of creativity. I'm Timothy Ogu. I'm a multidisciplinary artist and a creative director, and I graduated from LCC back in 2017. Today, I'll be joined by three LCC students who are passionate about using their skills to make a difference. We'll be discussing how to use your voice to affect change and how we can work to become better allies. You'll hear from disability and accessibility advocate Abby Chapman, who took up the role of student speaker at LCC's graduation in 2022. Designer and eco-muralist Nikki Dewar, who's passionate about climate activism and related projects across UAL. And Alex Goodall, decolonizing Wikipedia assistant and LCC changemaker. It's time to hear from our panellists, but just a reminder, you can also head over to the LCC YouTube channel to watch our value talks as they happened. I hope you guys enjoy. I'm Abby. I graduated from the Masters in Design for Social Innovation and Sustainable Futures this year. And through that, I founded the Accessibility Project. Uh, I'm Alex. Uh, I just graduated from Sound Arts and Design here at LCC. Um, And my work has been uh, mostly around um, the decolonizing Wikipedia network here at UAL. Uh, My name is Nikki. I was also on the longest title ever, MA. (laughs) (laughs) MA Design for Social Innovation and Sustainable Futures. Um, We actually get paid by the word when we graduate, (laughs) so that's why we picked it. But um, I was a muralist. uh, I've been a muralist since 2009, and I came back to get my master's to make uh, murals eco-friendly and to um, use them for activism, figure out how to use them for activism and for mental, social and environmental health. Nice. Well, first of all, congratulations all on graduating. Thank you. Um, I hope you, how was, are you guys decompressed from a hard year of education? No, not really. <laughs> I haven't left yet. Sort of, yeah, yeah, I haven't left either, so I work here now. Um, nice. <laughs> awesome. I'll straight, straight into next year, yeah. so I haven't really awesome. left. Yeah, they're not getting rid of us yet. (laughs) Awesome. And can you all explain a bit more about the activism you do and why it's important to you? Yeah, so uh, all of my activism is sort of through the Accessibility Project, which is looking at social inclusivity, um, accessibility for those who struggle to integrate into society, so people with disabilities, mental health, um, and really looking at community integration and how that can be really powerful. Mm. Uh, I started working on decolonizing the curriculum um, in the Sound and Music program back in 2020. I was working with Lucy Panasar, and as part of the work that we did, we set up the Decolonizing Wikipedia Network because we realized that the democratization of information was a really useful way to kind of attack what a canon means in in an arts kind of sense, um, and how that can be used as a tool for changing what we what we take for granted about who artists are and who we kind of look to for inspiration. Uh, so that's the kind of angle that I'm coming from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, similarly, I, I'm in, you know, I've been an artist my whole life and I, I knew when I was three I wanted to be a painter and, and I've sort of gotten to this point in, the, in my career where I just wanted my painting to be like for as much good as possible. And I feel oftentimes the people that don't have access to art are the ones who need it most. And I feel like for me, art was such a kind of like a a sanctuary and it helped me so much through different traumas and um, with mental health issues, with physical health issues. It was always like, it always had my back and it was such a huge outlet for me. 
So part of, I, I teach participatory muralism. So I engage communities in co-designing and painting murals together to, to reclaim their space. Mm. And part of that co-designing process is, is determining like what is, what is important to this community and what do they want to make murals about. And especially because I'm a traveling muralist, it's a lot of listening. And it's not so much about me coming in and saying what I think would be best for the space, but like just how a doctor would diagnose a patient by first asking them what's wrong. Yeah. I have to do the same thing with murals in order for them to be as meaningful and impactful for the community as possible. Nice. So it's using my platform to create a platform for others to discuss those issues and to make art about those issues and to also make that art together. So it's, it's mental health because I think, you know, engaging in art is therapy, but it's also social health because they're making the art together. Mm -hmm. And now I'm using only environmentally friendly materials in, in my murals because I feel like if you want to truly uplift a community with them, you can't also be destroying yeah. the local environment. To the, yeah, environment and um, paint is the number one contributor of microplastics in water systems. And it's also a huge um, factor with uh, CO2 evaporating when the paint dries because it's all made out of plastic. Mm -hmm. But plastic paint was only invented in the 1950s. Everything before that, you know, didn't have yeah. plastic in the paint. So like, you know, we just kind of went that way due to convenience. So I'm, I'm slowly like breaking down this mural process and making it as healthy as possible for mm. the community and the environment. Yeah, love that. And I think you, you all occupy a really special space where you're artists and activists. And how important is it for you to both occupy that space? and? What I also would like to ask is, is our activism, you know? I think it is in general. I think art is a, is a sense of expression and most forms of activism come from that sense of expression. It's just for me, my background is graphic design. I also did my degree here in graphic design. <laughs> And my creative practice became the tool to solve the problems within accessibility. So it was thinking, well, how do we design society? How do we design a community to be accessible? So that's one element of it is you're, you're, you're designing spaces. But the other element of it is when I'm working with people. So when I'm doing workshops with different individuals in the community, I use art as that sounding board mm -hmm. um, I'm a fully trained youth worker and I know from experience that when you ask someone what's wrong it's really hard to talk about it and it's really hard to say well actually I'm struggling with x y and z but if you start creating and we did a workshop together actually in Southwark mm -hmm. um, called my story is my power and actually by just providing them this creative space and saying, right, write your story, create your story, they did it. But if I'd have sat down with someone like this and said, right, tell me your life story, yeah. you'd be like, well, that's a bit, I, I don't know you, like, you know, so. It's tough to, all right, I can start. Yeah. <laughs> but it's sort of, it's, it's an icebreaker as much as anything. Yeah. Uh, so it's been really important within, within all of my work. Yeah. What about you, Alex? Yeah, it's interesting the difference where for you the activism stuff comes um, out of the art itself. I guess for me it's more about that activism, activism side of things informing the art that I make. Yeah. It's been really interesting to be informed by so many of the people that I've engaged with as part of the work that I've done um, and learn so much about so many practitioners who I never would have heard of before. And yeah, it's been really 
interesting and exciting to kind of come at it through that angle where that's what comes first and then that informs the practice. Yeah, I think I've gained a lot out of it um, from that. It's Yeah, it's cool to like see the different ways that it's um, been channeled through or channeled or a practice has channeled it, the yeah. work itself. It's really cool. Yeah, with all three of us, um, I think there's like a, a major element that is participatory in all of our practices. And I think like I was sort of trained as a fine artist to be like a gallery painter. And that's so much about like personal self-expression. And the deeper I get into my career, the more I realize that it's it's like bigger than me and and I don't want to just be telling my story. And and I had this one mentor that told me like, you know, I think I was just so excited when I started working with him. I was just like going on about me. <laughs> and he was like, you know, you're here to learn from me. Like you have to soak more and ring less. And I was initially like really insulted. And then I realized that the reason I was insulted is because it's true. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, so I think this next chapter for me is about like soaking more and ringing less and, and using my platform to create um, communities. and. That's like the amazing thing about going back to school sort of late, later and I started my MA at 30 and um, I was just so ready to be around other like-minded people because I had been doing my thing for so long sort of alone and the participatory muralism that I was doing wasn't really respected by my undergraduate mm -hmm. university in the States because I majored in illustration and they were like, but you're not even doing the painting. I'm like, yeah, that's the whole point, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but for them it was like, no, but you know, this isn't yours. And I'm like, yeah, I, I know that's, I'm doing that on purpose. I'm not like trying to, to get out of painting. That's what my favorite thing to do. I'm trying to give other people the opportunity to paint because I love it so much. I want to share it. And so, yeah, the amazing thing about coming back to LCC was getting to meet people like Abby on my course and working together because now we've got to host a bunch of workshops together and we have like similar passions, but different um, skill sets, I'd yeah. say. So the My Story is My Power mural, I told everybody like Abby's the brains behind the operation and I was just there to like make it look pretty. Um, <laughs> I disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> You've got a lot of brains. We just come from it from a very different perspective, I think. You sit much more stereotypically in the sort of creative, and as much as I'm a designer, I'm very sort of logical, research-focused. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why we complement each other. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, no. Yeah, I love when Abby does my research for me. And then, yeah, and then she comes to me with a great idea. But then also, like, you've been trying to step more away from the graphic design and go yeah. more into the social advocacy and I'm like happy to do that part of it. Um, so we've been, yeah, getting to work a lot together and she, you know, she's not the only person on the course that I met that I've been working with, but I think that's the amazing thing about coming back to school is like, you're really paying for the community. Yeah. It's like the most expensive club to belong to. <laughs> I, I completely agree. Yeah. A hundred percent. Even in my, in my course, I, I think anybody would, anybody that goes to uni, especially in the UK, was paying a lot of money and everybody could probably find holes in what they're paying for educationally. But the community you build, uh, and, I, and UAL especially is great at this, I think, because he has so many campuses across London, but LCC even just the facility alone. But <laughs> I always say to anyone, anybody can ask, like the community you build at university, uh, it's especially as an art student, I think it's even more so important because like the way you guys are saying, 
you guys mate from two different parts of the world you probably didn't know you had probably no idea you two at the start of your course would be like oh now we're going to work together and we're going to not just create art together but hopefully commit change cause people yeah. to think differently that's truly insane you know like just on my on my front i've had people that i've met and we're working together but uh Hopefully, and we've we've not worked on projects big enough yet to hopefully commit change, or well, perceivably in my mind. But the fact that you guys have met from university to doing that from two different parts of the world is a beautiful advocate for university. So, I just wanted to pick more about your. Um, when did you start to realize that activism or just saying something that was bigger than yourselves was important in your art? And when I guess that goes hand in hand with when did you realize that it, everything you yeah. campaigning for was important to you? Yeah, I think it's interesting because you say obviously it being bigger than yourself, mm. but my activism started with myself. So it started with my own personal experiences in life. And I'd always been sort of interested in sort of design as social impact. And I was trying to navigate that through my bachelor's and it was sort of working, but it sort of wasn't. And there was also an element of timing when I was ready. But I got into accessibility because I'm disabled myself. And for the entirety of my life, all you hear, especially through like medical models, is, well, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then it, I, it dragged me down. And it wasn't actually, you know, I'm grateful to have such a, a, a brilliant mum. But my mum sat down and was like, right, but what can you do? And let's focus on that. And then let's build a pathway. And I started to think about that. And then actually... It wasn't until COVID happened. Mm. And as someone who, you know, so I'm 27 next month, what, 25, 24 when COVID started, it wasn't until I was sat at home and told by my doctors, we can't give you access to the vaccine because your condition is so rare, you don't meet the high risk category, but you can't go out, you need to self-isolate COVID and you together is a really bad idea. Not that it's great for anyone, but it's sort of, I'd really struggle with it. And I was at home and I was isolating and my whole entire generation on Facebook, on Instagram, were like, it only affects the vulnerable, it only affects people over 90, you know, let's go to secret parties and all that lot. And not that I want to make it politically about COVID, but sitting there, it was the rhetoric of it only affects the vulnerable mm -hmm. and this complete disregard of disability and this complete disregard, well, you're you know you're not you're not needed in society because you're vulnerable so let's just all go out to work yet here i am you know bachelor's educated about to become master's educated i've worked since i was 17 it's sort of we do give back and we are sort of a hidden sort of power 100%. force because we have to 100%. really fight to have that normal life mm -hmm. that i went into my master's and i was like right i'm going to spend the entire time focusing on changing the rhetoric around what disability is mm. would i have gone so passionately to it if covid hadn't have happened i don't think so i think but then thank god it COVID woke did that happen, yeah, yeah it woke that fire up but all of my work separate to to that i've done other pieces of activism especially within youth work and sort of sexuality and gender it comes from a personal basis and then it's like taking a step back and being like, right, it's not about me, it's about this community. And then, you know, I help others. So if I I've have got friends who are activists in other fields, then it's not appropriate for me to be saying, you know, let's, let's do this, but I'll stand by you and I'll be your ally. Just as I've got, you know, 
heterosexual friends who do that when I'm yeah. doing stuff for the LGBT mm. community. So it definitely starts with yourself, mm-hmm. I think, yeah. and then it becomes much, Love much that. bigger than you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know, it's interesting, I guess, because community always is so runs so in parallel with it at every moment of the journey, I think. Just the act of soaking and not ringing is a community-building act in itself. Mm-hmm. And I really like that phrase. I'm going I'm to use that. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, yeah, it's kind of hard to pinpoint, I guess. But certainly I do remember being in the first year of my degree and thinking, why, don't I, why can't I name any more than, like, three canonic female sound artists? Um, and then it kind of, kind of spurred from that. It was like, there must be there. There must be women doing this. But um, I need to go and find them. There must be so much more that's hidden that's not kind of taught canonically. Um, and yeah, that's kind of what spurred it. And then it was an exercise in those of us who were interested in that, um, getting involved with it and trying to figure out where all that representation was that was so lacking. So yeah, it starts with the self, but mm-hmm. it's, I think it's it, so quickly it becomes bigger than that. Yeah. That it's almost imperceptible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> At least for me, I, I thought it was, immediately it was, other people were were involved mm. in terms of what I was interested in and what I was sharing with others. Yeah, I love that. What about you, Nikki? Uh, yeah, very similar story. Um, I'm from Miami, and in in Florida, the of all the states, Florida has the third least funding for students um, in the country, and we actually spend more per prisoner than we do per student. So the the schools in in Florida are just really really awful and they do have an amazing art art magnet program which if you apply and you get in they're free and um, I was super lucky to have a grandma who was a graphic designer um, she got her graphic design degree in 1989 nice. Congrats. and <laughs> and um, she sort of raised me and um, so I was you know she was she's older when she was raising me so she couldn't run around mm-hmm. but she could give me art assignments to mm. do just all day long. And um, because of her, she, you know, I was, I was able to apply for all these art schools and, and get into them. And so I got this amazing, like golden ticket, basically. It was a free art education from, from five to 18. And I just, like looking back, I just shudder to think what would have happened if I hadn't got that free art education. Mm-hmm. And I was so lucky to sort of win that golden ticket. Um, and then when it was my sister's time, you know, to apply for the same schools, I was like, well, you know, she's she's not a visual artist, but she can sing and she can act and she can dance. And so maybe there's one of my friends that is at my art school in the musical theater side of things that could mentor her. Mm-hmm. And maybe I could mentor one of her friends if they want to get into art. And so. I started this uh, mentorship program where I partnered um, the teenage students with the with the younger students who wanted to apply for those same schools that they had gotten into. And the program uh, was like so successful that they actually shut us down because they thought our, our students were cheating. And it was a, it was a free wow. program. <laughs> and so everyone was really skeptical about it because they were like, why, how are, you know, how are they getting in? This is a free program. And I, I purposely targeted um, schools with students, a high percentage of students um, on uh, welfare and kids who wouldn't have Mm 
the opportunity otherwise for their parents to pay for art lessons or pay for dance lessons or pay for music lessons. And so I went around and like met with all the principals of all these different schools and did my speech and my flyer and um, started this whole program. And I realized like my mission is, is so much more than me making art. It's about me giving as many people as possible the opportunity to use art as their outlet and, and as their voice and, mm -hmm. and then honing that superpower mm -hmm. in everybody else. Because I think it's such a, it's such a powerful tool, especially for people who didn't have the best opportunities growing up to create opportunities for themselves, mm -hmm. whether it's because you're disabled or, you know, from a low income home or from, or, you know, there's just so many different things that, that art can really help with. Um, Completely agree. And, and then you get to go to, you know, amazing schools like this and build communities of people where everyone has their story. And I think it's like, it just becomes so much richer every time you add one more person. It's like, it multiplies exponentially every time you get like one more person to tell their story. And yeah, it's just, again, it's just been a mission. Like my, you know, starting as, as a teenager, I just started to realize like how lucky I was mm. to have that outlet. And I was just so scared of like, what would have happened to me without it? Mm. And then how many other kids, you know, could I, could I sort of, you know, help find that in themselves. Um, and and not just kids too, I think it's never too late. Like the, yeah. I had, you know, I was doing this participatory mural the other day in Summerstown and this like 80 year old hmm. man who's lived in Summerstown his whole life um, was painting with me all day, every day. Oh, and he, he was asking me all these questions about America. Like, you know, why do you, why do you cut, you know, and then put the fork down and then pick it up with the other hand? And, you know, he's <laughs> asking me all these questions and like, why don't, why, why do you call it a line and not a cue and all these things? And I was like, I was like, look, I'm just a painter. Like, <laughs> but yeah. at the end he, he was like, you know, he was thanking me. And I came in, I came into his community. He's been in for 80 years. I'm from somewhere else. I'm asking him to paint with me. And then he was thanking me as I was leaving. I was like, no, 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 thank you. Like, thank you for letting me into your home and, and into your space. And, you know, with my crazy ideas about mm -hmm. making eco-friendly murals yeah. and him just being open and receptive to that was incredible at, at his age, too. Yeah. Um, so I think it's never too late. I, I always joke with, you know, the parents will sometimes come and drop off their kids. And I'm like, no, 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 this is for you, too. Like, mm -hmm. you pick up a paintbrush, you stay. Because... Mm -hmm. I think everyone needs, you know, some kind of creative outlet. 100%. Couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And um, just to pick up on your point, I mean, how you influence that eight-year-old. Eight my question here is, why are students' voices so powerful? But I think it's bigger than that, right? It's why are young people's voices so powerful? And is it, are we, I say we, um, but are we a product of, our, of, of the time in terms of diversity, thoughts, issues, exposure to different things? Or do you think it's, things like art school or, you know, what, what, what makes it, what is driving young people now um, and hopefully changing the older generations to pursue their ideas of um, activism in so many different ways, in so many amazing ways? What do you think? <laughs> I think a lot of it is around knowledge. Right? I speak to my family about this a lot because I always joke with them that 
I don't really know how I happen to be who I am because I come from a very right-wing family and then here's me, the gay disabled artist activist, you know, like poster child Everything of the family. Everything they love, right? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> but, it's, it's, but I have these conversations with them and I think, one, we're more curious. We don't just read the Daily Mail and cite it as if it's biblical. Yeah. Um, but the knowledge is there, the a- access is there. And I've had a lot of conversations recently because obviously it's f- 50 years of, of Terence Higgins and, and the AIDS um, epidemic, and my parents lived through that. And you're watching all these do- documentaries, and I'm like, how did you accept this? I'm like, one, the 80s, as much as it was the most homophobic era of it, is you all look camp as hell it's like you can't tell who's what so it's like how does this work but how how can you sit there and and listen and not question Mm. and they always said well the information wasn't there and to an extent I do agree with that they had their radio they had the tv and they had the newspaper and what the government was saying but they couldn't go onto the internet they couldn't find other people's perspectives they couldn't explore different points of view. If you came from a certain area, like I come from Surrey and I come from a little town in Surrey, you have that community and you have that community view. And if you don't move outside of that, you never experience anything else. Whereas you don't have to move now because it's all at your fingertips. And I think that comes onto students' voices is why university is so important. Is you come to university, especially if you go to university in the city, and you are automatically surrounded by loads of different people that you wouldn't have met or wouldn't have spoken to. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it was very prevalent on our course. Mm -hmm. The one thing I started on our course, literally the first activity we had to do was essentially this survival toolkit, which is literally just present your life. Like, Mm -hmm. what bad things have you gone through? What good things have you gone through? What are you passionate about? And after the day, we all knew each other very well, but we all came from very different backgrounds Mm -hmm. and different walks of life and those conversations continue um, i'm just i'm having like nightmares about my toolbox now thanks for bringing that up <laughs> no, I, I like to, your your mine was like was so not the assignment like everyone brought like yeah my glasses my favorite pen my you know mine was like a color wheel like yeah, it's just, <laughs> yeah. i didn't understand the assignment <laughs> but it's sort of it's about we all come from different perspectives that's what you're passionate about some people went really deep with it some people didn't and that's fine but i think one is it's about the curiosity and the seeking for knowledge but i also feel like our generation and the generations below us now as well mm. have had enough yeah. have had enough yeah. of all of the all of the issues that are just happening in the world. You know, you can't turn the TV on without someone being killed wrongly, you know, murdered. You can't... The, the, the fire's everywhere. Mm, yeah. I mean, look at this week, you know. It's like, okay, yeah, I'm going to be the British person that moans about the weather, but... <laughs> No, but it there's moaning about the weather that, and then that, there's yeah, that and the apocalypse yeah. as well yeah, yeah. alongside it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and COVID and, and you know, the, the sort of our oh, racism's getting better, homophobia's getting better. It's not, it's just becoming institutionalised, so it's becoming hidden. Mm-hmm. And I think we're a generation that has become angry about this, and I think that's misunderstood by older generations. Yeah. 
I think we see through a lot of that stuff. Yeah. A lot of that, the stuff where it's been hidden and maybe it's been hidden for decades and we somehow have figured out between ourselves how to identify it. Yeah. Amongst ourselves, rather. Um, yeah. And I guess it's like, like you say, with the availability of information um, and that kind of keen eye for identifying that kind of thing, it's kind of, it's almost like one big community where we all know that yeah. the strongest thing that we have is, it sounds really cliche, but coming together, I guess. And no, like, it's not. It's no, not. it's true. Figuring it out for ourselves. I think uni yeah. time is like almost like dog years. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, because so much growth happens in yeah. such a short amount yeah. of time. That's, yeah, that's very Wow, cool. I've never thought of that. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, when you start to when you end. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Our course was only, what, 15 months? If that, I mean, you know, the summers and things, you take all of that out. Yeah, it's it, and COVID time too is kind of like dog years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many people got married, got divorced, had babies, like boom, <laughs> yeah. boom, 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 because it was like all of that in one. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> and and I think it was sort of, I mean, and we had the lovely experience of going to uni during COVID, so it was even more. It was an incubation period that was that was then doubled because we had the experience of COVID and uni at the same time. But it was like in the States, Black Lives Matter happened once COVID hit because now everybody's sitting at home yeah. and they're not distracted by like their daily grind, their nine to five. Every, all the other distractions were kind of turned off and then people had time to sit and be like, you know... Shit's fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we yeah. gotta do something about it. It's yeah. not a coincidence that Black Lives Matter happened during no. COVID, you know? And I think- It was bubbling a long time before that. It, yeah. Especially from what I saw in the States anyway, there was just a long It history. just boiled yeah, over. It just, it just boiled over I don't wanna say COVID. fortunately, but there's no fortunate to any death, but the fact it just happened in a moment where everybody was sat at home. We are ready. It just made it just, you, yeah. you couldn't ignore it anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And and then coming to uni, like, on the tail end of, of that and, and COVID, I think we just had this um, incredible experience of, like, everyone was just so ready to, like, sink their teeth, and, their teeth into things that just really mattered. Because you just realize, like, when, when COVID happens and stuff that, like, oh, what, we're all so close. Yeah. We're all so, like, this life is so precious. We're all so, co so close to losing it at any moment. And it's like, you really need to make your minutes, your seconds mm. count. And I think, you know, with, with the states and, and with Black Lives Matter, um, is just sort of like a representation yeah. of all of these other things. Yeah. And, and then like coming to uni on the tail end of that, it was, it was kind of incredible because now I feel there's a huge shift happening. Like all of these different universities, my partner came out at the same time and went to a different university at the same time. And so there's this whole decolonizing the curriculum happening. There's this whole movement towards sustainability mm -hmm. and, and design happening. And it's kind of like, I feel with Abby and I, she's, we we all sort of have to pick like which one are you gonna you can't you can't save the whole world yeah, yeah. you have to sort of pick a lane and mm. decide like which is which is gonna be my fight mm -hmm. and it's hard to choose yeah it I really think, is hard to choose yeah. yeah thank you Nikki your your point was you're great and like you do have to pick your fights you can't do everything but then at the same time a lot of these uh, things that you're talking about bleed into each other mm -hmm. um, I do feel and I wanted to ask. What roles did you um, take on when you was at university in terms of activism? And what roles do universities have to play in activism? Because I think there is a special bond created 
at university between you and your friends and your peers. And I think a lot of the, definitely for me, a lot of the ideas I formed and now take on was formed leaving my hometown, coming to university in those three, three to three and a half years. So, yeah. I think we've had a long gap where universities haven't. So I think there's been, you know, we had the Bauhaus, which was very much the yeah, forefront of of change. Still very forward thinking even now. Um, and a lot of initiatives and a lot of education is still based off of that. And then I think university sort of went silent and we're like, right, we're not going to get involved and we're going to sort of step side away from this. And I think in the last few years, thankfully, universities have been playing a much bigger role. And UAL has, even in the sort of the four years that I've been involved mm. from when I started, or well, five years actually, 2017 to now, the jumps that UAL have taken to really sort of be like, well, actually, no, okay, we are a large institution in London. What should we be doing is, is a really good thing. And I think a lot of that is a driving force from the students. And I think when I, when I lecture to students and when I'm talking to students now, it's more of a, remember, this university doesn't exist without you. And I think students forget that. You know, if we didn't come here, if we didn't pay, there wouldn't be a university. So if there's something you're passionate about, talk about it, fight for it. And I think on the initiatives, and there's loads out there, I decided to be out of the box. And I was like, right, well, I'm going to create my own initiative. don't want to do the ones that are out there. But um, I, in my case study for my master's was essentially proving that LCC is inaccessible, which is a huge statement. Now, I'll back that. I I am pro LCC out of all the UAL. I wave Come that on. banner with pride. Come on, you know. But there were so many hidden issues yeah, at LCC. We're we're an old building. It's falling down a little bit. You know, lifts don't work. But it's sort of how do we like create that accessibility? And if we can't do it physically, how can we do it socially? And you know, it was a huge daunting task. But um, I took it all the way to the Vice-Chancellor and that only happened because I sort of went out through my research, you know, I'd spoken to essentially 300 students and about 100 members of staff and sat them down and like, what do you like about LCC? And, you know, you get all of the stuff that we all do, the community, the environment, the friends, you know, tutors, and it's like, what don't you like (laughs) and how do you improve that? and I collated this all and then I had to pitch it to management, which was the most daunting time of my life because it's like, right, I'm going to be... You don't really see these people. Yeah. And it's like, right, I'm now going to tell you that LCC is inaccessible. This is what I think you should do about it. Now, thankfully, because I'd done all of that legwork before, they were so receptive and, you know, we are working together now to improve... LCC's accessibility whilst we're still in this building and sort of have been brought on to sort of advise in terms of the new building, how do we make that accessible? And I think it's possible. I think we automatically think as students we can't make change to the institution and I think historically that has been correct. There have been previous sort of management in universities generally where it's a hierarchy of no i'm the lecturer i'm the program director i'm the dean i don't want to listen to you you're just the student it's changing Mm. and 
if you've got that voice and you've got something that you want to change about your university, like anything in the world, it's like you've got to prove it. I knew LCC was inaccessible as a disabled person, but I've got to prove that it's not accessible for others. And then once I've got that, if you put it in front of someone, they can't deny it. And that's why I've always been more of a silent activist, I think, um, especially growing up, because when growing up I was very introverted, had so severe social anxiety, so sort of go to a protest or something was like my worst nightmare. <laughs> um, that has changed as I've got more confident. But it's more about, well, what change can I make that it, it's quiet, yeah. but actually it has a huge impact. Yeah, you're going to see change, yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been a it's been a journey, and it still hasn't hasn't finished. I'm still very much working in accessibility in LCC. And thankfully, we're all seeing the benefits of it slowly and surely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah to jump on, uh, sorry, no, no, continue. Um, to jump on Abby's point, having to pick a lane, it's like I, I also have a disability, and so I love, you know, personally, Abby's project but I also know that she's going to take care of it. Like, so it's like, I don't have to fight that fight now yeah. because now I met someone that's fighting yeah. that fight for me. So then it frees me up and, you know, we work together and I support her as much as I can, but now I don't have to worry about that so mm. much because I know Abby's going to take care of it. <laughs> so now it leaves me, it frees me up to sort of fight a different fight and we do work together, but we're, we're definitely in separate lanes. And, um, in, uh, with, with what Abby was saying about, you know, the design of LCC, um, just so ironic, it's a, you know, a design school and like it, <laughs> the building is seriously lacking some design. Um, but I, I found out through my research into murals that white walls are actually like detrimental to your eye health and your mental health. It's, it's bad for anxiety and it's bad for um, being able to focus, um, you know, physically focus, which then leads to mentally not being able to focus. So now I'm trying to get murals in LCC and, and I've done one already. Um, another one's coming up, and now I've been asked to do one at, at all the universities. Mm -hmm. So, um, like my grandma used to say, the squeaky wheel gets the oil, you know? And and I think that, like, a lot of people just maybe don't think they can because no one has said, hey, here, you can do this. It's not really about waiting for somebody to tell you, hey, you can do this. It's about saying, hey, I'm going to do this. Please support me. Yeah, well, to be honest... <laughs> You're gonna. I'm gonna do this regardless. Yeah. So you're gonna see it. Yeah. You know. I think because it's like I could do it here. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, I'm gonna do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you want, I can do this here, or I can just go do this somewhere else. Yeah. But I've had some amazing support from professors here, and like, I, you know, I I could be doing it somewhere else, but I do get to do it at LCC, which is amazing because mm -hmm. you know, obviously LCC is now a part of my journey, and now I get to be a part of it, mm -hmm. and I think that's like really if there's any message that comes out of this i want students to know that like you do have the power to make the change you just have to so. be you have to have the audacity to think you can mm. and i think like you know the audacity is sort of an art form in and of itself <laughs> all of these great artists from history they had the audacity um i call it like the obama factor like he had the audacity to think he could actually be the first black president mm but he did it, yeah. and, but he had to start with that audacity, he had yeah. to start with like that confidence, the charisma to think that Abby thinks that she can actually make LCC accessible. I mean, that's not an easy task, mm -hmm. but she actually thinks she can do it and that's why she's able to do it. Mm -hmm. 
And I think it's so hard, like we feel like, oh, students were here to learn from the university. I think the, the, the university has so much to learn from us. Yeah. I think that's the, when you said, what can universities do? I think it is that it's to do with the like, institutions naturally resist change, mm-hmm. um, no matter how That's why they're called institutions. Well, yeah, <laughs> no, not to even be ironic, um, but it's true. No. Yeah. Um, and I guess like the the main thing to do is to, in some way, do away with or deconstruct the hierarchical mechanisms that prevent those changes happening, because we're not every step we take is a small step mm. in many cases. It's about allowing those to happen, not allowing them to be blocked by bureaucracies and... It's a slow process. It is a slow process, yes. Um, But I think that's the main thing that universities can do is allow that to happen because no one's trying to make anyone's life worse. You know, every step is for a a beneficial reason, essentially. Mm -hmm. Um, It's about where a university places themselves in that journey, I guess. Mm -hmm. Do they want to be on the right side of it or... Yeah. Do they want to just let you do it somewhere else? Because mm-hmm. either way, it's going to happen, like you said. The, the initiatives that I was part of, um, I started working um, as a student change maker yeah. back in 2020 um, with Lucy Panasar. It was kind of her project. Uh, she was at the helm. And yeah, I was working in the Sound and Music program to try and embed um, decolonization in the curriculum mm-hmm. um, with a view to like making, not, not, not with a view to making sure that every piece of work ever was about racism and anti-racism. Um, which is, I think, why there was a lot of resistance, because some people thought we were trying to change the face of the course. Um, we were just, the, the overall aim was to make sure that it was um, a concrete consideration in the way that things were run. Mm. Um, See, so that's, that's how I kind of got properly involved with it. Um, and then as part of that, we set up the Decolonizing Wikipedia Network. Um, so there we kind of identified that such a huge platform as Wikipedia has the capacity, given how widely used it is and that it's free, um, has the capacity to really um, spearhead a lot of the change we wanted to see in what a canon is, what it contains, and to what extent we actually need a canon. Um, what should we just kind of do away with it entirely? So yeah, through that we started um, building up workshops and resources and um, kind of guiding people, helping them to become Wikipedia editors not just to edit, but to identify what was missing, which is, I think, the biggest kind of barrier, is not knowing when something's not there. Yeah. Because how, how are you supposed to know? Yeah, exactly. Um, and then there's a whole lot of ethical considerations around um, if something isn't on Wikipedia, perhaps there aren't enough primary sources about it in the first place, and there's a reason for that, and it's like chicken and egg yeah, kind of thing. Yeah, um, so it's like trying to interrogate the reasons why people aren't uh, always represented and in a, as best we can trying to rectify that. It's an ongoing process, mm. but um, the network is still alive and well. Yeah. Um, and yeah, hopefully that we can continue to. Yeah, kudos to you guys, man. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you guys, it's a bit of script, but do you like being called activists? And the reason why I, I asked that is because, and I'll, I'll bring this to myself, like I wouldn't, in the sense of if you went on my socials, it's not like I'm, I talk about race. But I talk about race because I'm black. Like, as the, as the further I grow, the further I but go in my career, I always say that if you're black, you're political. It doesn't matter if you are not anything or if you go and just be an, a regular person or if you go and be a success. Football's a great example. I'm a massive football fan. Raheem Sterling scores a goal tomorrow. He gets, but the next day, some a black boy gets killed. He'll get asked about it. It's like, well, Harry Kane doesn't get asked when, God forbid, someone... Uh, 
you know, it's something happens to a boy in, in Cheshire, you know, it's just like, but if you're black, you're political. And it's funny listening to all your stories. I'm, I'm fascinated by them, but I wonder if, is it just like, I feel like these are just things, these are innate, like the way you were talking about, it, these are innate in you. It's just like, we need to change. So yeah, just quickly, do you like being called activists? I don't overly use it. And the reason I don't use it is because, and it comes back to silent activism. So, so at the moment, I'm the community that I, I live in, I am looking at how we make that community more accessible and how do we promote and improve community integration. So that means that I, uh, my stakeholders that I'm currently working with are the council, the police, the schools, um, the NHS, churches, and there is still a stigma around the word activist. If I go and have a meeting with the police or with the council, I'm like, right, I'm an activist. There's this impression that I am going out, gluing myself to roads, <laughs> smashing up things, when actually I'm creating services. So it really depends what situation I'm in, whether I use the word activist or advocate. I think um, advocate is yeah. my favorite word, yeah. <laughs> So it's uh, it's an interesting one. If the stigma changed, would I use it more? Yeah. But then should I question myself, should I use the word activist to break the stigma? Because <laughs> yeah. then yeah. it's like you're seeing me as an activist, yeah. but you haven't got that stereotypical impression of mm. me. It, it's an interesting one. But I also know that if I go into certain meetings, I am not going to get to where I need to. And it's all about like the signific signification of, of communication and how I present myself. Mm. Um, so I very rarely use the word. I've never been referred to one to, as, to, as an activist before today, I don't think. Mm. Um, yeah, I don't really like it that much. <laughs> I used to use it a lot. I used to say I'm, I'm an artist activist because mm. I'm activating art in communities, yeah. literally. Yeah. But now I say that I'm an advocate for like mental, social and environmental health yeah. through murals. Yeah. But I, I am a climate advocate yeah. for, at LCC. Yeah. Um, so again, that's, I think that's the friendlier word. I think activism sort of comes with like an angry mm. connotation. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, it has like a negative yeah. side where I think advocate is like the positive Kind's side idea. of the same, the same meaning. Um, but I am a climate advocate for LCC and I was also on the climate design studio, which were at CSM, um, sustainable designers. Mm -hmm. And, um, I'm now part of the ADAL committee which is working to embed sustainable design across the curriculum of the design school. So again, it's like, it's like institutionalized advocacy, <laughs> yeah. but, but it's like you almost, you have to sort of like, you know, slay the monster from within. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it's, it's so much about like communicating and about saying like here I'm, I'm here to help and like work with you i'm not trying to work against you mm -hmm. because in order to really make that change you have to be able to have the conversation yeah, and if you come at it with like negativity or with aggression then you're not going to be heard mm -hmm. yeah. but if you say like i want to help I'm, i'm an advocate i'm i'm here to to sort of you know build bridges mm -hmm. not burn bridges mm -hmm. um i think So I think it's, it's almost like it needs a rebranding, the word <laughs> activism. Yeah. I used to use it a lot more, but now I'm leaning more towards advocate. And it actually started because when I would describe Abby's project, I would say she's an accessibility advocate. And then I was like, wait, is that the word I should be using for myself as well? But it's like almost easier to 
to talk about other people's work yeah. than it is to explain uh, your own, course, I think. Yeah. Um, so when I would talk about, you know, oh yeah, I paint these murals with the community and I have an accessibility advocate that I consult with in reference to Abby. Mm -hmm. And then I started using that word more yeah. for myself as well. 100%. Yeah, so for everything you guys advocate, <laughs> yeah. uh, what is your proudest uh, achievement in that? Do you know, I think recently, especially all of the work I've been doing at LCC and sort of coming to that conversation about hierarchical um, ways that universities are and the fact that a lot of students are met with resistance when they're trying to make the change was asking to be the graduate student speaker uh, at our recent graduation. And it wasn't just the proudest moment because I was standing there and that, you know, I could speak to all of the graduating speakers, but I felt recognised by the university that they believed in my work and they believed in me and they wanted to keep that relationship. And it was a real wake-up moment that, okay, they're listening and we're working together and they get it. Um, so I felt like I'd succeeded in that moment. Mm. That was probably also my proudest moment, <laughs> was getting yeah. to watch her be the student speaker. <laughs> because I, like, one of, you know, from, from the second I met Abby, I knew, I think I told you I was gonna work for you one day, and she said, no, we're gonna work together. Like, you're gonna, you're gonna work with me, not for me. Um, but I felt validated that, like, the university picked the person I had picked. <laughs> um, and she made me cry for, like, 20 minutes after her speech. I, I walked up to her mom and I was like, I'm so proud of her. Um, but, yeah, it was a, it was a really a validating moment for, for me as well that, like, you know, the person I, I chose to work with and, and to befriend, like, was recognized by the university. And... Um, yeah, I just, it was, it was like so much more, I feel like I'm getting teary-eyed now just talking about it. It was so much more um, special that day, mm -hmm. getting to see her do her speech. And like, even my partner, I was telling her mom the other night, he'll get out of the shower and be like, and another thing about Abby's speech. <laughs> <laughs> the reason it was so good is because <laughs> like, it wasn't self-indulgent. It was super inspiring. She told her story, but it wasn't about her. Mm. It was really about her inspiring everybody to advocate for the causes that they believe in. And, um, you know, like I said, you can't you can't fight every fight, but you can inspire people to fight their fights. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's what her speech was about. The first time that somebody in the in the uh, decolonizing Wikipedia network published an article that they'd written, I was really excited about that mm -hmm. um, because it was something that we'd built as a team. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, it was it was really nice to see that like there was a tangible thing out there now yeah. that had made, you know, in the grand scheme of things, a negligible difference, but mm. to somebody it made a pretty big difference. And mm. yeah, that was really nice to see. Nice. Well, you've all made beautiful pitches for what you want to see in the world. So I would love to just encapsulate that. <laughs> we need a new prime minister. So I would put you three <laughs> forward, please. We, our, our current crop isn't great. Um, <laughs> but yeah, what change would you want to see in the world? What, yeah, if, if and yeah. Yeah, where'd you start? I, th I think within my own work, I've, Let's just focus on that because otherwise we'll be here all yeah, day. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, the two main things, or the three main things that I work with is accessibility, disability and community mm. integration. Disability is really simple one, is that I just, disability doesn't, shouldn't be seen as a lack of ability, it's just different. 
Um, with accessibility and community integration, they work together. It's I want to see a day where we're not talking about it. It's just there. Mm. It just exists. And I'm very aware that that's probably not going to happen in my lifetime. But I want to be at a point when, you know, when I step away and when I retire, that I'm passing the baton on. But we've moved forward mm -hmm. and we continue that journey um, because access is so different for everyone. But it shouldn't be this huge topic in 2022 that if you're in a wheelchair, you can't get into a building. If you're blind, you can't cross the road. If you're autistic, then it's not picked up until you're 30. You know, it should be so much more simplified and we should be so much further than we are. But I hope we get there one day. We will, for sure. Uh, I mean, there's so many th issues. Yeah. <laughs> but um, I guess an overarching thing is um, I hope to see more like community organizing and building. I think that is probably the most tangible way to fight a lot of those issues. Um, so yeah, that's kind of the, I guess that's not the main goal, but that's the, maybe the next step. Yeah, yeah I, I think like less red tape would be really yeah. nice. Because yeah. <laughs> I think there's so many people just get, um, you know, they lose momentum because there's just so much, like when you want to do something different and new and, and make change, there's so many steps in the process. I mean, for me, getting permission to paint a mural can take years to get to go through all the you know, risk assessments and the getting the permission for the building and there's all these things and you know it's just like I'm just trying to I'm just trying to do something nice like <laughs> <laughs> and I think so many activists have that problem activist advocates um, <laughs> where it's like you know they they have the best intentions and then there's just so many things getting in their way yeah. and it's it's for no other reason than people are afraid of change mm -hmm. and like well it would be a little extra work for me if I had to do this paperwork. So I think just less red tape would be really yeah. nice, giving people the opportunity to make those changes um, before they lose momentum and steam and give up. Yeah. And I, I happen to be super, super stubborn. <laughs> and I think that's a, that's a, um, a really vital, um, what's it called? It's, it's, a, it's a good thing. I think advocates and activists, they need to be angry. They need to be stubborn. They need to be um really you know passionate and sometimes those are seen as negative things but it it takes that to get through all the red tape sometimes yeah so yeah thank you thank you Nikki. we haven't got unfortunately we haven't got a lot of time i wanted i'd love to speak to you guys all afternoon but i guess the next question is is how can people make change and and yeah and how can the younger generation follow in your footsteps and carry on that baton like you mentioned sure i think it comes to something that i saw i had a youth worker when i was younger and they sat me down and all they said was focus on what you can change, not what you can't. And I think if we all did that, if we all looked at ourselves and just focused on what we can do, mm. then the world would be a better place, quite simply. 100%. Could not put it better myself. Yeah, I think um, don't wait until you feel ready or brave. Just do it scared yeah. is my yeah. motto. <laughs> you'll never feel ready. You'll never feel brave enough. But like... You do it and then it's done and then you realize it wasn't so bad and you can move on to the next thing. So just do it scared. 100%. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of LCC's Value Talks podcast. Keep up to date with future episodes and the latest on life at the college by following us on social media. You can check out our YouTube channel by searching for London College of Communication and also follow us over on Instagram, TikTok and Twitter at LCC London. Thanks for tuning in. See you next time.